welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and today we are going to discuss a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and I know my guest feels the same way. We're going to talk some whitetail deer hunting and do a little recap of uh, rut 2017 with uh, one of my uh, whitetail hunting heroes, Mr. Bill Winky. Bill, uh, thank you so much for being with me today. No, it's my pleasure, Christian. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, it's been kind of a surreal year for me in deer hunting. Uh, <laughs> last time we talked, you actually congratulated me on a great season and uh, kind of left me speechless because I was like, I think Bill Winky just uh, congratulated me on my deer hunting. So something cool might, must have happened. You, you just, you're looking for any excuse to talk about those deer, aren't you? Oh, man. Did you I'll put them on your Christmas? Christmas card, but you've got pictures of them on your Christmas card, don't you? Christmas card? I had a wrap, I had a wrap done for my vehicles. I've got my Kentucky buck <laughs> on one side and my Kansas buck on the other, and I just drive down the interstate, and I see all these other guys just drooling out the window, man. Yes. And you should have the mounts riding in the back seat with you. <laughs> That's a good idea. Or mount, mount those racks to my hood. <laughs> that sounds like Iowa now. Now you're getting into the, the redneck country of southern iowa here <laughs> well in, in all seriousness i mean maybe we'll get to some of that but but you know the the rut this year um it seemed like reports from around the country were like that it was really weird it was hard to predict and i don't know what your philosophy is on all that i, I kind of think i know a little bit because you've always been one who you know sort of believes that it generally fall, falls around the same time every year and that there's only two or three really good days to hunt anyway what i know that you didn't have exactly the season you know maybe that that set records by your standards in Iowa. Uh, you know, what was your impression of the 2017 rut? I think the more that I do this, um, the less I know. And, uh, you know, when I first started, I thought I had a handle on how all this stuff worked. And then every year something happens where you question uh, some of these things that you've held near and dear to your heart. I still say because of the biology and the and the research that's been done that the rut or let's say the peak of breeding does fall during the same time frame. Uh, excuse me, same time frame every year. The question is how much activity is there during that time frame, and how wide let's say is that bell shaped curve that describes the activity. Well, you know, when you it, when you say activity, you mean day, daylight. Activity, right? Yeah, bucks, you know, bucks on their feet, making themselves vulnerable to bow hunters. Um, and, and getting back to your point, it wasn't really a, a slow year for me. Uh, I saw, you know, a decent amount of rut-related activity uh, just about every day, but not very many mature bucks. And, uh, you know, that's not... Um, you know, the first time that's happened to me, I've had other years like that too. 
Uh, last year was kind of the opposite. Last year was a lot of mature buck activity, and it seemed like everybody that I knew was killing nice deer. And then this year, it was kind of the opposite, and, and a lot less daylight activity of these older age class deer. And most of the people that I talked to were, you know, not disappointed, but you know, less than less than thrilled, I guess, on on how their season went. So, you know, what was unique about this year versus last year? You know, who knows? Uh, I mean, people will say the moon and I've had, you know, maybe there's some correlation there that I'm missing, but um, I've never felt like that was the deciding factor that determined whether or not one route was stronger than another. Um, it, it really comes down to, and you'll, you'll catch the odd person that, uh, that had a great season. And it really just comes down to how many hot does walked past your tree stand or your ground blind. Um, that's really the rut in a nutshell. Once you get past that point when the first does are really starting to come into estrus in, in uh, pretty good numbers, then from then on until the end of the rut, it just has to do with whether or not you got lucky enough to be in the proximity of a hot doe because that's where the action is going to be at for the whole rest of the rut. Um, so so th- that's where, you know, you've talked about my three or four great days. Uh, I, I truly believe in that, and uh, you know I think most of those great days revolve around just being in the right place at the right time when there's a hot doe. Um, you, you'll feel like, man, the rut is going crazy. Every buck in the world is you know on its feet and running past my tree today, and then the next day it's like a ghost town, and you can't equate it. Well, the the reason, the big difference is just whether or not there was a hot doe that went through there, you know, before you got there in the morning, or maybe one of the ones that went through early when you didn't realize it was in estrus and that you know is what what turned the rut and really got things going yeah and and i mean when it comes to deer hunting and especially rut hunting nothing skews our perception more than our own experience right i mean i I would tell you oh man 2017 was a great year it was red hot rut action and you'd be Mm -hmm. like well what are you talking about you know what well, I mean? And it's like, what's the truth? The truth is somewhere in the middle, probably. Well, you, you got to average it over a lot of, of contacts. And uh, the more people you talk to and the more, you know, anecdotal evidence that you get from more and more people, the easier it is to kind of draw some conclusions. So I would say overall, it was a slower than normal rut. Um, across the country. I mean, I, I, I won't quantify it to say, you know, what percentage, you know, whatever, but it, it really was noticeable in the conversations that I've had with people since the season has kind of wound down. Yeah. Um, i tell you what, though. You know, you've always been a believer. It's funny. After, it'll be 10 years uh, in 2018, believe it or not, that I've been the editor here at Peterson's Hunting, And so, over a course of a decade... Feels like, a, feels like 40 years. <laughs> well, thanks for that fine endorsement, you know. It's been no, a pleasure working with you, too. I'm kidding you. But, it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm sure. You like me almost all the time. Uh, <laughs> Except for every time my articles are due. <laughs> That's right. Well, you mean overdue because they're always oh, well, overdue. Yeah. They're not overdue until the magazine ships, right? Uh, we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> we'll have to take okay, that, well, we'll take 
conversation offline. <laughs> um, <laughs> over the course of a decade of, you know, reading your stuff and learning from people, you know, like you, learning from, you know, Randy Almer, uh, learning from Eddie Claypool. I mean, you really get to know, I feel, you know, I almost feel like I know you better as a person, uh, just reading, you know, certainly as a hunter. And I know without even asking, you know, you're going to tell people, I would pick November, you know, like seven to 10, roughly, maybe a day or two before and a day or two after. But if you had to plan your 2018 rep vacation right now, that's the window that you pick and you pretty much stick with that every year. Well, yeah, in some years it's going to work and some years it's not. But, you know, that's, that's the strangeness of this stuff. I mean, I'm not saying that it was perfect when I was younger, but it just felt like it was a little bit more predictable maybe 20 years ago than it is now. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why. I don't know if it has to do with the population dynamics, if there's more does, you know, or whatever the case may be. I don't know. But we had a nice, you know, the temperatures were good this year, so we can't blame it on it being too warm, you know, that, that suppressed daylight movement. Movement. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think year in and year out, on average, that's that's the time frame that I would pick. It's just that it doesn't necessarily pencil out every single year, right? But it, well, you know, I just I, the reason I bring it up. It's funny because. <laughs> You know, of course, there's all sorts of other theories about, you know, what yields the most uh, daytime rutting activity. And, and of course, moon phase is, is a big one. And I don't know if you're a big believer in moon phase or not. But um, I talked to a friend. reason I bring it up is because I was in Kansas during that first full week of November. So, like, the week of November 6th. I think November 6th is the day that I arrived in Kansas. And November 7th was the day that I killed and you know to me that seemed ideal even you know in the months leading up to that hunt knowing I was going to be there that week and certainly you know knowing through my own past experiences through your sort of general belief about the route I was like that ought to be you know, hitting it just right. I talked to another friend and he was like, oh, you're kind of early for Kansas, you know, like I don't usually have any luck there until the 15th, but of course I killed my buck on the 7th and he, he was working a scrape line and then the next day we were just driving down like a two-lane highway at high noon and I saw an absolute gigantic buck just coming through the edge of a cane field out in broad daylight he obviously you know he had his tongue hanging out and he was a total stud buck and he was obviously looking for does or working a doe I didn't see a doe but there may have been one close by and then that night I saw a big 10-pointer chasing does uh, you know, in an alfalfa field. And then the following day, when I was out uh, in the morning trying to fill my doe tag, I had another really big mature buck chase a, a doe right behind my tree. And a, a, my buddy that I was out there hunting with ended up killing a different 10-pointer just a couple hundred yards away. So clearly, like, you know, I can only speak for that general area of like around you know, central Kansas, but seemed to me that that those few days, you know, November 7th, 8th, 9th, that was hot in Kansas anyway, yeah. you know? Well, in most years, I mean, there's, there's some biology behind 
that also. It's not just based on my experiences, you know, hunting the rut for as many years as I have. Um, and we could dive into that if you wanted to, but um, I, I just believe that year in and year out on average, that's going to be your best chance for killing a, a good solid buck. And, you know, I've hunted Kansas quite a bit over the years too, and I've never bought into that notion that it was the rut is later there. Um, and, and maybe people have just a certain style of hunting that lends itself to the deer being in a certain phase of the rut and that yields more success for them. And if they hunted a different way, maybe they would have different success earlier. You know, who knows? Um, but, but let me throw something out really quick before I, before I forget it. I also feel like there's a really, really good day or two on the last cold front that goes through October, especially if it's during the last week of October. And that's a definite green light. Um, you know, if you have to choose between that late October cold front or, you know, November 7th, um, it's a little bit of a coin toss because, you know, you get something right around Thanksgiving or the 28th, 29th, 27th of October, and you get a nice cold snap come through at that time, you can see a lot of buck movement. You, I think you mean Halloween. Um, you said Thanksgiving, but you yeah, yeah, not Thanksgiving, yeah, Halloween. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so anyway, keep that in the back of your mind too. That it's not only November. I mean, you can get some really good activity the last few days of October too if you get that cold front. Oh yeah, and the weather. I mean, I think especially in terms of daylight daylight activity, because we're talking about two things. Like you mentioned, the science, and I'm pretty sure where you're going with that, and I'm aware of the science as well. Is that if you talk to like a state wildlife biologist who's in charge of the deer program you know there's plenty of research to show that in the you know in deer herds throughout the midwest you know in northern latitudes so you know even where i'm at in pennsylvania where you're at in iowa i mean you might be a little, just a little bit north of me but that whole you know you could draw a line across the country any state you know that sort of has the same seasonal you know weather that we have around november 7th is going to be the mean conception date you no, know november 15th November 15th. November 15th. Yeah, so okay. that's why the seventh is so good. Is because you're on the front end of that. You're catching the bucks before all the does are in estrus. So you don't want to be. I'm not saying that you can't have success during that. You know that peak of conception, uh, but you'd like to be on the front end of that because then you've still got that ramp up of intensity and the testosterone is you know like carrying these bucks forward. And there aren't that many does available, so they're having to hunt a little bit more. Um, but once you get into that, I call it almost the lull of the rut when you get into that period when you have the the highest percentage of conception um, that's the, the 15th and you know there's been like you said a number of state departments that have done this and, and you know they do it by um, aging fetuses which you know if you think about it it's kind of a, a strange thing I've seen it done I've actually seen the guys you know if you kill a late season deer I've seen the biologists will actually you know do a you know a dissection and they'll they'll measure that fetus and they'll tell you within a couple of days or a day I don't know what exactly what they're uh, um, well they've got a, yeah they've got a scale and they'll measure how many centimeters yeah. long those fetuses are and then based yep. on the date that it's measured they can then backdate and tell you within like you say within a day or so of when that fawn was conceived yeah so. and they that's where the that's where the the science comes in and I've never seen any in this part of the country that didn't come back to that November 15th 
you know, plus or minus a day. Right. So I think so I think that what plays a bigger role, and I agree with that too, and that's why, I, you know, at least when it comes to actual breeding activity, uh, it's hard to put a whole lot of stock in Moonface. Now, if you want right. to, if you want to say that Moonface impacts. Um, you know how much activity occurs during daylight versus after dark that's a whole different discussion you know but if you yeah. want to say when the fawns are conceived I still think like you said that rut is fairly consistent you know year after year if by rut we're saying when the majority of does are actually bred um, yeah and you know, in the shape of that curve you know like I don't know from one year to the other if it's more intense where you know you get more conception within let's say a 10 day period but some other years maybe it's stretched out over 14 days you know who knows um, you know that's stuff really eludes me but uh, I, I think the science will back up the, the discussion of saying that the middle of November in most of the states in the northern two-thirds of the United States and into Canada that's your your uh, peak yeah and um, now I think the other thing that plays a huge role I mean I don't think I, I really I, I'd say I know I mean I'm confident I think you'll agree with me I mean the weather is is huge because yeah. I was fortunate in Kansas it it was it hadn't been all that cold actually until I got there and like literally the day that I got there a front moved through and then it was pretty cold it was like seasonably cool if not a little bit below you know seasonal norms that week that I hunted so I think that that helped out a lot you know to keep the deer yeah. moving yeah for sure we saw that here because November 9th you know we saw some really good activity on the 9th uh, here and that was one of our best days of the whole rut um, this year but that's when that front got to here um, so we were you know a day or so behind you on that the and for sure, uh, temperature plays a role in the amount of daylight activity that you can expect. I know uh, at one point, and it goes back a long time, uh, Charlie Alzheimer put together a database of observations from hunters from all over the country based on their trail cameras. And he came to the conclusion that 50 degrees was sort of like this number that, that was relevant in the say, northern half of the latitudes. If it was 50 degrees or cooler, he saw a higher percentage of, of daylight activity. If it was 50 degrees or above 50 degrees, then he saw it you know, can consistently drop off uh, as the temperature went up. So I kind of look at that, and I don't know if it's, if it's really you know, you know, gospel or not, but that's... You know, for this part of the country, that kind of has been my yardstick. And we went through the whole rut this year, and we were never, we were very rarely above 50 degrees during the day. So we had what should have been ideal conditions through the whole month of November. Um, but we still, we still had the, you know, the funky, you know, <laughs> rut. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, like I said, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. So just another year to, to kind of, you know, scratch my forehead and think, you know, what happened there? Yeah. Now, I know from talking to you that you didn't have, you know, quite as many really big deer on your trail cameras this year going into the season. You talk about the frustration that you heard, you know, from a lot of other hunters. Were people feeling like, you know, it was a frustrating rut because they knew that they had, you know, a lot of mature deer on cameras and they just weren't seeing them? Or was it yeah. that, you know, that there weren't as many mature deer? No, I think they were getting pictures of them. They just weren't seeing them during daylight. Um, that, that's kind of the, 
the feeling that I got. You know, I think the herd is bouncing back in this part of the of the country from the EHD that we got hit with back in 2012, and you know, there was a, a lingering effect in 2013 in some parts of the Midwest. But uh, that really put a hammer to a lot of the you know the really good hunting in a lot of midwestern states. So we're bouncing back from that now. So there's a lot of really nice deer out there that people are getting pictures of again. And the frustration, like you said, really came from just not seeing those deer during daylight. Now, now I know that even though it was a bit maybe slower than normal, you still managed to tag uh, a couple bucks. And I haven't seen pictures yet, but I'm sure that there are bucks that, you know, uh, plebeians like me would would be thrilled to have, have taken. Well, no, I'm, I'm not even sure they'd make your your wall anymore, Christian. I mean, you kind of left me in the dust here. I'm gonna, I should be running this radio show and calling you. Well, you know, I'll uh, put, put my people in touch with your people after the show today. <laughs> um, no, it was, um, in, in, to answer that really quick, they were, uh, they were mature deer. And uh, I didn't have a lot of high-scoring deer on the farm. In fact, I didn't have any. The, the nicest bucks I had on the farm were younger deer that, you know, you just don't want to shoot those deer when they're, you know, they're immature. Um, and, you know, I have some luxury here with my neighborhood where there's a fair amount of restraint. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that every deer I let go is going to make it another year, but at least some of them are. So I feel comfortable letting some of these really nice younger bucks that have big antlers uh, get a year older. So the ones I was focused on, of course, were the ones that had some age to them. Now, what's, I didn't have any what's, what's mature in, in Bill Winkie's definition? Well, it used to be four years old, and now I've kind of moved up to five years old. Um, and, we, you know, you don't know that just by looking at a deer. Um, you know, I'm here, you know, 365 days out of the year, and I'm running cameras, and we're filming deer on the farm and stuff like that. So you, you kind of gain a little bit of a history with the individual deer, and then you say, well, I remember that deer last year, so he had to have been a three-year-old last year, so, you know, we'll wait and we'll start hunting him next year, you know, and, you know, sometimes it backfires, um, but, you know, it's just the nature of it. You can't, you can't worry about what might happen. You just have to make the best decisions that you can, and what we started doing around here is, is letting the four-year-olds go. And there can be some really nice four-year-olds. Um, I mean, there were a couple three-year-olds on this farm that, gosh, with any luck, they're going to be giant four-year-olds next year. And I'm going to be, you know, having to duct tape my arms to my side when they come walking past my tree stand. So I'm going to be reaching for my release aid. Um, that's, uh, but it's just part of the fun of, of, you know, this level now that, that, you know, I've kind of graduated from just wanting to fill tags. Uh, I still like shooting them. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's nothing better than being at full draw. But um, you know, I don't have quite that bloodlust that I might have had, you know, some time back. And now it's fun to watch them to, to develop. Not necessarily. I don't like watching them once they reach maturity. I like shooting them then. But it's fun to see what they can be next year. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, I think I have almost as much fun, you know, seeing what these deer can turn into is what I do trying to kill them. Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm at now. So five years, you know, for better or for worse, is, is sort of my yardstick for maturity on this farm. Now, what about, uh, you know, for those folks who are listening to the show and they're thinking, man, that's 
a great luxury that you have in, in Iowa and, and obviously, you know, you've got some advantages that other people don't have. Um, yep. You know, for me, it's a different reality for sure. And if I could kill, you know, a three and a half year old every year here in Pennsylvania, uh, I'd be really happy with that. And I might have a different goal in mind, you know, when I go somewhere like a Kansas or an Iowa. What, uh, how can, you know, how can our listeners take, you know, what you're talking about and adapt that to their their reality wherever it is that they're hunting i think the easiest way to do that and, and i've written about it in your magazine a few times too is to be realistic uh, setting an age target of one year older than what most people in your area are shooting so let's say that if most people in the area that you hunt are shooting a year and a half old bucks then a two and a half year old buck is a good solid realistic deer to hunt um, if you want to be a quote unquote trophy hunter or a mature buck hunter then throw one more year on so in my neighborhood I'd say most of the guys around here are shooting probably three and a half year old maybe four and a half year old bucks um, just because you know they all they have enough restraint to, to do that um, so then you know a four year old buck becomes a very realistic trophy and a five year old becomes you know maybe that where you really have to put some time in and hold out for um, so that's where this, this equation kind of changes depends on where you're at so in your area uh, if you're shooting three and a half year old bucks you're probably you know you're killing that that 10 percent or less animal um and, and it's not even realistic for your average reader um it's more realistic for them to say i want to be challenged with a two-year-old uh, you know you know a two and a half year old buck and um that's kind of the evolution let's say of of hunting and the evolution of maybe the management of the animal and, and even you know some of the ways that the dnrs are starting to react to you know what hunters are telling them um people are saying hey you know we've had a lot of fun killing deer over the years but it would be fun to shoot one as a year older you know, he'd have a bigger body i'd see a little bit more you know uh mature rutting activity from that deer he wouldn't be running around like a crazy nut you know he'd be a little bit more careful a little bit more of a challenge the chest match might be a little bit more rewarding uh, so you know you're starting to see more movement in that direction where people are more focused on the ages of the animals that they're hunting rather than just what they're carrying on their heads yeah <clears throat> you know we had a situation uh, this year uh, in my area where we actually uh, there was a a friend of a friend who hunts uh, not very far from where I hunt who killed a buck that we know was uh, at least five and a half years old if not six and a half an absolutely giant buck unfortunately in all the time that I've been hunting this area that's the only deer that I know of you know buck wise that's reached that kind of age but it's interesting because again you know as I said earlier over a decade of learning continually not just through my own hunting but through absorbing all the information that comes through you know the doors at Peterson's bow hunting I really put some pieces together and connected some dots between what I had observed over the years of this particular 10 point buck and some of the things that you talk about in your articles and one couple things that I thought were interesting is uh, First, you talk about the fact that every buck or every deer really has kind of its own personality, just like we do as people. So, you know, to a certain extent, right, deer are 
all similar, but even given their natural instincts and all that, there's some individual tendencies. Some deer might be a little more prone to move around more often. Some deer are more prone to move around during the day. And you see that and you've documented that through many years of observations and trail camera photos, you know, on your property. And, you know, that's certainly something I can think about with this particular deer where it was very, very unusual to get a daylight picture of this deer. And I'm sure that other than the day that he was killed a few weeks ago, he was actually killed uh, towards the tail end of the rifle season here in Pennsylvania. So he made it again through all of archery season. And as far as we know... That was the only time that any of us had seen this buck on the hoof in daylight. The other thing that I thought is interesting, and you've talked about this with your articles as well, is that a lot of times I think you're talking about like three and a half year old and four and a half year old bucks. They get pretty nocturnal, uh, but also they they shrink their core area as they get older so by the time a buck is five and a half years old or older you've had a number of bucks right on your farm that might have spent most of their time like just in a 30 or 40 acre area is that correct yeah and that um there there it's a tendency for sure um you know, I'm always a little bit careful when I when I try to project too much of one style of behavior onto the onto the whole herd. Let me back up just a second. So, this differentiation in the personality, so to speak, or the behavior profile of these deer starts to separate after age three. So it seems like. You know, let's say you could write a stereotypical white-tailed deer hunting article that applies to almost every buck up to and probably through age three. But then it's sort of like people, you know, most kids are more or less the same. Obviously, you got a few that are a little bit different, but they kind of, you know, they huddle together and they do their thing. And But then as the people get older, you know, some of them are, are you know, a lot more friendly. Some of them are grouchy and, you know, everybody's kind of got their own profile that becomes more and more distinct as they get older. And that's what we really see with the deer, too. Um, you might see a little bit more daylight behavior from, say, a two-year-old from one versus another or a three-year-old of one versus another, for example. And that might carry over, you know, as a behavioral trait into their older ages. But they really start to become unique uh, as they get older than that. And I think that's where the fascination comes in, you know, being able to hunt these little bit older deer. Is because you can't just say, well, I'm going deer hunting. You have to be hunting that one deer uh, because he's almost like a different species of deer from maybe another one. Uh, so here's a classic example. I had two bucks on my farm in 2012. Uh, one of them had a range that I have no idea how big that range was. I mean, it might have been two square miles. Uh, he was an eight-year-old deer that fall. Uh, I know he was because I had all kinds of history with that deer over the years, missing him and just, you know, I mean, I had that deer. I mean, he, he had the better of me. Anyway, he was all over the place. And then I had another one on the farm that was seven years old. And I, I'm pretty sure, you know, based on my trail cameras, that he never left about a 20 to 30 acre area, even during the early phases of the rut. Um, and, and then there was a, a third one. There was another seven-year-old buck that each year his home range moved a quarter of a mile. 
you know, from age four to age seven, he moved a quarter of a mile and his, his range would be fairly small within those spots, but it moved, it changed. And it's like, well, these are three deer that all basically originated on this farm that had three completely different uh, behavioral profiles by the time they reached full maturity. And, uh, you know, to the point where, again, you're, you're sitting there thinking, you know, there's no such thing as a stereotypical whitetail past age three. Um, they're all, they start to really form their own, their own patterns and their own, you know, behavioral profile. So, um, and again, we're kind of getting a, a little bit academic here because I know there's a lot of people that don't have the opportunity to, to hunt these deer. So maybe they're just finding it interesting to hear this discussion. I kind of feel bad about talking about it because I know there are people that are saying, well, gosh, I mean, if I see a two-year-old deer, you know, I'm, I'm doing backflips. So, you know, maybe we should just be quiet and talk about something else. <laughs> no, no, because here's the thing, because you're the guy who hunts in Iowa. And so I get where you're coming from. You think you're, you're just, you know, making everybody mad, but I'm the guy who hunts in Pennsylvania. And I think that there's a real application here for those of us who are constantly dealing with a lot of hunting pressure, because I'm convinced that you know, there's there's some encouraging parts of this and some discouraging parts of this. I'm convinced that this particular buck lived as long as he did because he was, you know, very reticent to move in the daylight and he actually had a relatively small core area. He had a pattern that I documented over the course of several years where he'd spend, he actually spent a lot of his summers on the farm where I hunt and then he would go about a mile away uh, to another farm and he would spend a lot of his hunting season over there in an area that is protected and it's pretty interesting to me that in a general vicinity where there's quite a bit of hunting pressure both during the archery season and the rifle season and a lot quite a bit of uh, you know deer driving activity during the rifle season that he managed to survive all of that by sticking to a relatively small area a protected pocket of cover and when he was killed he was killed moving very naturally he was actually chasing does into a yeah. food plot when he was killed so you can tell even from that behavior that he didn't feel an undue amount of hunting pressure because he was you know moving those deer were moving in you know in that area little area where they felt you know relatively safe um so the cool thing for us who hunt in places where there's lots of hunters is it is possible to you know get some deer that will even in areas where we think there's no chance of getting a deer that old some of them do make it the discouraging part of it is we know that if a deer gets to three and a half and he just happens to be one of those deer that's more prone to move during the day, he's almost certainly going to be killed because if, yeah. you, if you move around very much at all, you're eventually going to walk in front of a hunter and, and get shot. Um, even here, even here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's just interesting. And the other thing that I think is important, and tell me what you think about this, Bill. I think a lot of times... You know, and even myself, especially like in, in past years, you know, when you're a, a relatively newer hunter or a less experienced hunter, we tend to ascribe almost mythical qualities to these mature bucks. And we think that, yep. you know, the only way that a deer can get to four and a half, five and a half, six and a half years of age is because, you know, he's somehow this uh, almost super 
you know, special <laughs> specimen that's so much smarter and better than all the other deer in the herd. When the truth of the matter is, is he happens to just have some personality traits that are more conducive to his him living, and that doesn't make him inherently any better, smarter, or anything else than all the other deer. There's, you know, it's just the way that his genes were coded, and he locked out. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, he's lucky, and, and that's what I was going to say about the bucks that you were talking about. He didn't seek out that spot. Um, it's not like they have uh, email or Facebook or something like that, and they can figure out, well, there's no hunters over here. He didn't just prowl around until he found a spot with no hunters. He just got lucky that that's where his fall range was. Um, you don't think, and, you don't and, think that there's any ability though on the part of the deer to adjust somewhat to hunting pressure? Yeah, on small on small scales. Um, and, and I I kind of I mean we could really go off t- topic here, but the uh, see they don't know what what's outside of their range. It's not like they know of some other reality. It's not like they think oh there's a lot of hunting pressure here. I need to go find some place where there isn't any. They don't know that. They just, they know inside the range that they're familiar with. They know what the conditions are inside that range. So they make the most of whatever works to their advantage inside that range. The only time that might change is if somehow they get run completely out of that range and maybe they have to adjust to a new area. But even then, they're usually pretty vulnerable because they don't know where they're safe and where they're at risk outside of that range. Um, So they, they tend not to adjust their range based on hunting pressure. They tend to work within it uh, and, and try to find those places where they can hide or you know somehow they dive into the thickest cover and they don't move at all except you know at night um, some of those types of things or those types of behaviors but let's even take a buck in my area for example and you were talking about the genetic code uh, I've seen bucks here that were very daylight active usually they're not super daylight active as fours and, and five year olds typically maybe a little bit as fives but you know you'll see some deer that really tend to be daylight active you see them everywhere when they're you know two and three years old um, in, in areas it's not because of hunting pressure that other bucks aren't like that because they all have an equal amount of it. So you say, okay, well now if that deer was living someplace like, let's say Pennsylvania, he would have probably gotten killed as a two-year-old because he was just covered so much ground. Um, but then you've got this other buck who by tendency, you know, just for whatever reason, he just doesn't like to move during the day. It's not like he woke up one day and said, well, I'm smart enough to know that I can't move during the day and this other buck is too dumb. It's just somehow he's wired that way. Um, he's probably got a better chance of making it. So there's, you know, if you're intentionally letting the deer go, you get a chance to see these types of behaviors because in areas where there's, you know, a lot of hunting pressure, those deer that move a lot during the day, they just get killed right away. Uh, and you, you never really get a chance to see that, okay, well, as that deer gets a year older, he, he still retains that same, that same behavior. Um, that's just, you know, just baked into him. Um, so anyway, my point is some bucks, I think, are born nocturnal and some of them are made nocturnal by hunting pressure. Um, and, and uh, you know, some of them are born daylight active, and they never become nocturnal. They die. <laughs> so, yeah, and those are all the bucks that don't live very long here. Yeah, and the, and the easiest ones to kill, and that's why I, I will tell people all the time, the bucks on my farm are going to be easier to kill than the same age buck anyplace else. 
you know, or not any place else, but in a place with more hunting pressure because basically the bucks that are fully mature on my farm might still be daylight active. I've just been intentionally letting them letting them Yes, go. absolutely. And that's what yeah. frustrates me so much in that, you know, I'll run into so much here where I've got a number of good bucks on trail camera, but I just never see these deer during the season. And it's exactly because what you said, that the deer that live long enough, right, to get yeah. to get big enough <laughs> to have racks that are big enough where they really start to get impressive. Those yep. are the deer that, for whatever reason, whether it's because they either don't move during the day or because they have a fall range that just happens to be in a protected pocket, it, yep. they just that's why they live. And it's it, it's it's like beating my head into a concrete wall because it's like if I can even like last year. It's a funny thing. Like I did actually kill a buck in Pennsylvania this year, and he might have been three and a half, but he wasn't one of the very biggest bucks that I had on camera last. Last year, I didn't film my buck tag in Pennsylvania, but I at least had an encounter with with one of the big bucks, and it was during the rut, and he was on a doe, and actually came to within 30 yards, and the doe kind of saw me move in the tree, and because she spooked, he was broadside at 30 yards, but I didn't have a clear shot, and after she kind of trotted away, he just followed her. He never spooked, but I never was able to get a shot at that buck. I almost consider the 26 deer season here in Pennsylvania more successful than this year when I did kill a buck because I actually saw one of the big deer and that's like you know again that's going back to like that's reality for so many deer hunters you know like if you can even see a, a real trophy you know during the archery season that might be like you know the pinnacle you know whereas we, we, we can travel other places in the country where there aren't as many hunters and there's not much pressure you might be able to see you know seven or eight shooters during one five-day hunt but it's just different you know yeah well they, they in the areas with less hunting pressure they just haven't called out the dumb ones exactly Let's just be honest exactly. about it <laughs> there are dumb ones exactly no I'm, I'm, I'm serious I love them I mean I build my whole career around dumb ones um, you know I, I just want them to reach a certain age you know hopefully they stay dumb the whole time uh, but they're not going to live long enough to reach that age and be dumb in states with a lot of hunting pressure right right no, I know, and so that so that's why when I say it's both encouraging and discouraging, you know. And on the one hand, it's encouraging to know that there is the odd, you know, buck that can make it to six and a half around here. But it's discouraging because I also know that we have a lot of, you know, every year we've got a lot of nice two and a half year olds deer that we know that are going to be, you know, really nice deer if they could live a few more years. But a lot of them are just going to die because they aren't hardwired to be safe you know yeah and I think that you know you're seeing I'm assuming you're seeing a slight change in, in the behavior of the hunters um, in, in PA because I know across the country it just seems like slow shift you know towards people maybe looking a little bit more at the age of the deer rather than just you know can I fill my buck tag maybe they think well I'm satisfied shooting the doe this year you know I got meat in the freezer it'd be kind of cool to see if that buck will, will get another year older 
then I think once you start getting that mindset, the best thing to do is talk to your neighbors and see if they have a, a, a like mind. Uh, if they don't, eh, you know, you're out of luck. But if they do, then you can start looking at some of these deer on your trail cameras and saying, you know, if you let that deer go, I'll let him go too. And then they're thinking, well, shoot, you know, maybe the next neighbor next to me will let him go. And pretty soon you got a little loose coalition of people that are letting, you know, certain nice young bucks go. Um, and then you're right back in that same game again where now you can have dumb deer that survive long enough to get mature. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there definitely has been a shift, you know, and we're seeing more, you know, older deer and more, you know, trophy rack deer in Pennsylvania than we ever have before. Um, and I don't want to go too far on my soapbox. I think that I think that where we lose some that I wish we didn't lose, and I'll just I'll get on the soapbox for a quick second, but I'm going to jump right off is during the the driving during the rifle season because I actually came up with a little rhyme about gear driving, and I think it's you know biologically valid. And what I like to say is you know, driving is extremely effective, but it's not selective. <laughs> And, that, and that's that's the problem with deer driving is typically, you know, when you get a deer that's running 25 miles an hour, if it's a legal buck, there's a real good chance that it's going to be shot at. So, Well, the other thing about it, too, is it does force those deer that are naturally nocturnal that aren't going to get killed otherwise on their feet. Um, you know, so the, their natural defense mechanism, the one thing that they can fall back on is not moving, gets taken away from them. Right. So anyway, enough on driving. I'm sure there's some people listening who love to drive deer during yeah no i mean i grew up doing it so i mean i'm not gonna throw you know mud on anybody um but uh, anyhow so uh, let's shift gears and say this you know i know it wasn't you know it wasn't the greatest season in in bill winky's career but what did you learn uh, in 2017 that you think are you know important to you going forward might be something that you know listeners can can take home well, I think it, it reinforces that one lesson that, you know, it may not be very applicable, but the rut really is only made up of a few great days. And, uh, you, you know, the I can count for sure on one hand the number of, of, you know, really good days that we saw in the tree. And I was out there every single day. I mean, that's the one luxury that I have, you know, for the last 30 years now. Um, I've hunted every single day of the rut. So I did it again this past season, and there weren't, there weren't a lot of really good days. So, you know, the takeaway is, unfortunately, this is the reality, but the, the unfortunate part, you know, of that is we don't really know for sure which days they're going to be. <laughs> so, so, I mean, cold fronts help. They help you to figure that out, but that's not the final and the only thing. Really, it comes down to, you've got maybe one really predictable phase, and that's that late October cold front is going to be good. Make sure you hunt that. And then the first hot doe, and that is usually somewhere in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, somewhere in that range, you know, within that buck's core area that you're hunting, that first doe that comes in, that's probably going to get a lot of bucks juiced up. And then you just got to be lucky enough to be in the area where there is a hot doe after that, uh, because there's nothing on the macroscopic level that really drives the herd. It's all microscopic. You know, where is that one doe that's in estrus that's near your tree? stand. Uh, if she's a quarter of a mile away or 300 yards away, pretty good chance you're not going to see much um, because that's where all the attention is going to be focused. So anyway, that's that's kind of the takeaway for me is that 
you know, it really just comes down to hunting as many days as you can, focusing on historically the best periods, and then just hoping, you know, that, that, you know, at least a couple of those really good days of the rut fall during your rut vacation. Um, and, and you do up the odds if the weather is cool, and you up the odds if you pick that stage of the rut that historically is the best. Um, but I guess that's just maybe there's nothing new uh, I'm not sure I learned anything new this year you know I, I learned a little bit on you know how to hunt my farm differently um, for sure you want to be embedded as far back into the timber as you can be in the mornings you know back on a ridge where the does will kind of filter their way in as the morning goes on and the bucks will come in there looking for them and you know in the evenings you need to be early in the rut you need to be near food and then as the rut goes on you need to stay back in the cover in the evenings because the does aren't coming out so again it's another simple formula but if you're trying to be in the close proximity to a hot doe your best odds are going to be to hunt where there's a fair number of does so if you're always hunting around the does um, you're probably going to keep yourself in the game so you just try to figure out where they're going to be and that's where you spend your time right right well it's pretty simple strategy really i mean I don't know. It's, like I said, it, it, I'm not saying that that I came away from the season with some, you know, great wealth of, of insight, um, but it confirmed a lot of the things that we've been talking about for years. Yep. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that one of the, you know, one of the things, especially if you're not hunting a particular buck, you know, if you're hunting just one deer, and that's, you know, that's a whole nother ball of wax. But from I found the most success here at home. Uh, during the rut is to just find um, a good pinch point, you know, in an area where you know bucks use the area, they travel through the area, and there's some doe bedding areas in the vicinity. And to just get into one of those travel corridors and put in your time, your odds of eventually getting a shot at a, you know, a buck that would be, you know, respectable for your area, as we discussed earlier, you know, are going to be good if you put your time in. Um, that's that's my simplest strategy during the rut, and it seems to work pretty well. Um, yeah, especially if I sure. don't if I don't pressure those spots or hunt and, them and that, at all early in the season. And that can work really good too, even when you're hunting a specific buck, if you know that that's more or less where that deer is spending his time, because um, it's really no different at that point. You're still just trying to find spots where you have the advantage, and typically those bottlenecks and those you know travel funnels are places where you have the advantage. It can be pretty tough to hunt around feeding areas and to hunt around bedding areas, um, but I mean that's where the does are going to be at their at their greatest number, and that's typically where I'll spend most of my time. But it's an equally good strategy um, to hunt those travel routes. The, the problem you run into, and here's okay, that, here's my biggest issue with that, I guess, is the mature bucks don't seem to cruise during the rut, and, and you almost have to be on the doe that he's interested in to kill him during the middle of the rut. Um, they just don't seem like they're out walking around covering ground very much. Uh, and, and that's after 30 some years of hunting every day of the rut. But those younger deer do, you know, the twos and maybe even the three-year-olds, you know, in my area. But once they get to that age where they can pretty much have any doe they want to, they don't cover a lot of ground. 
Um, they just go wherever that dough goes. And it's, it's frustrating because you think, oh, this would be, you know, bucks are going to be on the move today. Well, yeah, the bucks are on the move today, but maybe the mature ones aren't because they're sitting with the dough somewhere or just, you know, hanging out and waiting for one of them to, you know, pop into esters. They're not necessarily covering a bunch of ground. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the difference between, you know, you hunting an older age uh, age class of bucks yeah. versus what I'm hunting and so my tactic might be a little more effective for, yeah, for, for sure. me than it would be for you you know yeah I think I think so I think once you start hunting those older deer that just seems like they they just don't walk around as much um, you know they're they're just uh, I don't know they're, they're hard they're hard to figure out you gotta be on the doe almost that, yeah. that he wants well, let's uh, let's shift gears and wrap up with a, with a Bill Winky update. I know, uh, obviously, it's always a delight to talk deer hunting with you, and uh, you know, you're you're a, a real authority on that, at least in my book. I think in a lot of people's book. Uh, what what sort of projects do you have going on uh, in your world nowadays? What uh, what are you excited about? Uh, what does 2018 have in store for for Bill? Well, I mean, the, the, I mean, we've started back in 2008, the video series Midwest Whitetail, and that's ongoing, of course. Um, I don't have anything other than that really on the radar. It's a pretty time-consuming business to be a part of, so we just keep that baby rolling along. I mean, we're, Tell me a little we, bit more, you know, for those who haven't checked it out in a while, or maybe, you know, not at all, what uh, what can people find at Midwest Whitetail, what, what kind of content do you have there, and where, where can they find it? Uh, the MidwestWhitetail.com website is the easiest place to find pretty much everything we produce. We've got a, a YouTube channel that a lot of people are starting to use now because obviously smart TVs have YouTube apps in them and now they can watch our stuff on TV even though it's digital, you know, quote unquote digital only. Um, so that's, you know, the Midwest Whitetail uh, YouTube channel. Also, we produce a series um, called Chasing November. And it's uh, it's not as real time as Midwest Whitetail. Midwest Whitetail is basically what's going on today or yesterday, and it's video driven. You know, a lot of daily video blogs talking about the activity of that day. And then we have a weekly series, you know, that kind of summarizes and, and you know maybe makes the story a little bit, you know, uh, you know pulls all the, the pieces together you know, yeah, for the weeklies. And that's not just the rut, right? That's all year round. Yeah, we'll do it during the off season as well. Um, you know, with the management practices and you know deer behavior and hunting strategies. We'll talk hunting strategies sometimes a little bit more during the off season, even than we do during the season because we've got more time. Um, but the chasing November is produced during the off season and it takes the footage from the previous year and it creates a, a like a story like a chronological story of our season. And it's a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> I would say more of a dramatic feel to it. You know, the, obviously the stuff that's closer to live is pretty cut and dry. We don't do a ton of editing on that. You know, there's not a lot of extra production work that goes into that. But the piece that we create that that's, uh, we have more time to work with, we can make that a little bit more artistic and, and uh, you know, a little bit more dramatic and it's got a kind of a cool feel to it. So those are the two things. You can catch both of those on the Midwest Whitetail YouTube channel or on MidwestWhitetail.com. And... Uh, you know, that's kind of where I spend most of my time now is, uh, you know, working on these things and trying to keep my team together and happy. Yeah, well, you do a great job with it, and I know that... Uh 
you know, there's a lot of people out there that appreciate it and rely on, you know, the things that they can not only be entertained, but the things that they can learn from what you and your team is doing and the help helps everybody to, you know, just enjoy the hunt a little bit more and, and hopefully be more successful. So um, I'll tell you what, I, I'm looking forward to reading about your hunt site, which I know you'll be uh, writing about for us for upcoming issues of Peterson's Bow Hunting. And uh, I look forward to hearing about those bucks that you, you killed. And uh, I'm sure that even though they weren't necessarily giants to you, they're, I'm sure they're going to look really good to myself and everybody else when we see them in the pages of Peterson's Bow Hunting. Yeah, I mean, it was a fun season. You know, I don't minimize it by any means. Anytime you're in the field and, and hunting these deer, it's a lot of fun. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to leave anybody with the idea that I was disappointed. It was just, you know, the deer that, that I was chasing weren't necessarily big antler deer, but they were still really fun to hunt. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing it with the readers. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just an honor to be able to, to do that. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. And just remember how honored you are the next time I remind you of the, the deadline that's fast approaching. Well, that's not an honor necessarily, but the rest of it is. <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, listen, thanks so much for being on Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Um, wish you the best of continued success uh, with the Midwest Whitetail as well as uh, in the field as we head into 2018 here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Christian, and, and have a great Christmas. Yeah, you too. Merry Christmas, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.